0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at BellFlight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us, as he does on most Mondays, is uh, Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses, uh, who is also a Center for a New American Security Fellow at CNA. He is part of the Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on unmanned systems, especially Russia's unmanned systems. Uh, Sam, welcome back. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for having me on. Uh, An absolute pleasure. Uh, And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage. Overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS uh, and Safran. Uh, Sam, uh, Russia continues uh, targeted attacks uh, on Ukraine's power uh, water and heating grids. I think many people might not uh, realize uh, that a lot of Soviet uh, era cities are based on central heating systems, uh, which right. uh, Kiev uh, has uh, in abundance. Uh, and it, talk to us a little bit about some of the, you know, how that battle is unfolding, because the Ukrainians are downing uh, some of uh, the uh, uh, weapons that Russia is firing uh, very rapidly repairing, but at the same time, they're still taking their toll. And Putin's strategy is to plunge Ukrainians into darkness uh, without water, uh, without heat, uh, and, and have them force uh, the Zelensky government uh, to uh, capitulate. Give us a sense on, on how the Russians are waging this campaign. Ukrainians are actually
1: pressing the Russians in the Kherson region and uh, Russian forces are trying to dig in, they're trying to redeploy some of their troops uh, to create a better defensive structure around their positions. Uh, in some areas of the Kherson region, their, um, their positions are becoming more um, and more um, untenable, but uh, both sides are very determined. Russians are determined not to give up Kherson because that would open up Ukrainian advance to Crimea. Obviously, Ukrainians want to press Russians there as uh, Russian military showing certain signs of weakness. And in order to press Ukrainians back, Russian military continues to use Shahed-136 and 131 loading munitions to attack the Ukrainian infrastructure. These drones are more capable when they hit stationary targets. Uh, All that is required really for activation of Shahed-136 or Gerain 2 as the Russians call it, is to dial in the coordinates via GPS. And so they can basically fly in more or less a straight line and attack uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, which are stationary targets, you know, they're big industrial sites. And uh, as you have indicated, Russia is trying to press the Ukrainian government by disabling heating, water, and power structures as the winter is approaching. And winters in that part of the world are relatively harsh. They're relatively cold. They're relatively unforgiving. And so a population in the millions without heating and water and electricity uh, is in trouble. And this is what uh, Russian government is banking on. Uh, As it it is continually pressed in the south and parts of the east of the country, it wants to pressure Ukrainians back by disabling its infrastructure and pressing its population.
0: Uh, How important uh, was the Iranian uh, acknowledgement, uh, public acknowledgement, that it is actually supplying Russia with these drones?
1: Well, I mean, it's an open-ended secret at this point. Um, No one was really shocked or surprised that Iran said that. Um, uh, They're kind of inching back their earlier denial that they never supplied anything to Russia in the first place. Now we have an admission from the Iranian government that, in fact, they have supplied it early on and before the war even started. But open source analysts have tracked multiple Iranian flights, cargo flights, across the Caspian Sea into Russia. And these flights continued actually in the opening weeks and months of this war. Uh, So again, it's an open secret. A lot is already known about this. Uh, Most Russian um, commentators aren't even hiding the fact that these are actual Iranian drones with Russian labels on them assembled in Russia. Uh, So it is important in the sense that uh, Iran is basically confirming an open-ended secret, but it is also confirming a growing relationship between these two countries, their military-industrial, military-to-military cooperation, and a continued acquisition of Russia by Russia of uh, Iranian military technology like these cheap loitering drones.
0: Sam, what are some of the methods the Ukrainians are using to shoot down uh, some of these Iranian drones that the Russians uh, are using, right? I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, cops, uh, you know, shooting at them. They're relatively slow flying. But what are the kind of capabilities the Ukrainians are using? And more important, what are the capabilities the Ukrainians are going to need as this uh, assault continues?
1: Well, uh, Ukrainians are using layered defenses. So they're using different types of air defense systems, and early warning radars, Um, at different distances to some of the specific targets. And this involves anything from small arms to large caliber machine guns to more advanced air defense systems um, around larger cities. Of course, what is important to acknowledge in Russia's use of of Shahed-136 and 131s is that they are continuously driving the cost of this usage down. And so Ukraine can obviously field more sophisticated air defenses but uh, using very expensive systems against relatively cheap drones is not cost-effective. And so what Ukraine is trying to do is also drive down the cost of defending itself against these uh, mass-scale attacks by using a number of systems, including some of the cheap uh, air defense systems and mechanisms that are relatively effective. Once Shahid is sighted, it could be brought down. It is, in fact, dangerous to try and shoot it down over a uh, city or a civilian or well-populated area. And this is what Ukrainian government actually warned its population also. Um, and that's why uh, there are so many eyewitness videos of people just shooting into the air, trying to bring down Shahed. Most of that is done. And if you look carefully at those videos, most of that is done basically in the last seconds of Shahed's descent to target in which case, even if it falls somewhere close, it's still going to cause a lot of damage. So what's important is to interdict these drones as they fly to target early on. And that's why there are a number of solutions out there, including, for example, Turkey floating, the, uh, the proposal of arming its Bayraktar and other drones with multiple uh, air-to-air missiles and flying them continuously in the Ukrainian skies, trying to track down and shoot down as many of these Shahids as possible. Russia's response to that would be launching ever more uh, greater number of these Shahed 136 and 131 drones. and That's why we have the recent acknowledgement that they may uh, acquire something like around 2,000 of them in the very near future and launch them at Ukraine. Again, winter is approaching. Winters are harsh in that part of the world. As right. Russia continues to hammer away at the Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, Ukraine will continue to press Russia and Kherson and in the east of the country. Uh, So uh, it is is a sort of a race uh, for time in one way or another. Uh, And the more Russians are going to be pressed in Kherson, the more attacks they're going to launch against Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. This is the type of asymmetrical response that Moscow is hoping will elicit um, some kind of a negotiating response from Kiev as well.
0: Um, let me uh, go back to uh, Ukraine's advance. Uh, you said that it's, uh, it is brutal, it's grinding uh, forward. Uh, Russians have moved a lot of freshly trained, recently mobilized troops uh, to uh, the front where um, some experts say they're just returning right back to Russia in, in, in body bags. Um, talk to us a little bit about the US capability that the Ukrainians are using on the leading edge uh, to, uh, you know, to press their case and also how effective these Russian troops, uh, these freshly uh, conscripted uh, and trained and rapidly trained Russian troops are performing.
1: The United States promised an additional aid to Ukraine, which includes 1,100 Phoenix Ghost uh, loading munitions. And uh, once they're delivered in those numbers, they could be uh, effective in blunting Russian advances and attacking Russian armored positions, armored columns, vehicles, command and control centers, The aid package uh, also includes uh, tanks, refurbished tanks from Poland as well. Uh, This has to arrive sort of uh, on time in order to prevent Russians from making any more gains. What has happened with mobilization, Russia's mobilization is that Russia is able to quantitatively uh, increase its, uh, its numbers. So they're able to basically replenish the men and the officers who are lost in the first seven, eight months of this war. But the quality is something that is probably um, in question. And there are still multiple videos, multiple eyewitness accounts of Russian mobilized men not having proper equipment, not having food, shelter, not having training, not been integrated into into the command and control structure and been sent to the front and actually um, losing a lot of the personnel, sometimes even by the hundreds. And so, again, it's, uh, it is possible for Russia to essentially replenish its lost personnel. And if both sides are digging in for the winter, Russia would gain some time in order to train these people, in order to re-equip them, um, that uh, several weeks to several months are going to be essential if Russia wants to uh, essentially relaunch its advance in the spring with people who are more adequately trained and equipped. But in the right. meantime, there are going to be thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people without adequate um, structure, without adequate supplies. And uh, these people are sounding off. They're not hiding their frustration. A lot of that, of course, is playing into the internal politics at the very top within the Russian government, with, uh, with people uh, fighting for influence and uh, trying to blame the MOD uh, for some of the mistakes and some of the big gaps that have occurred in this war. So uh, it's not clear exactly if Russia's full mobilization is actually going to be 100% effective, but uh, there is evidence that at the very least, the numbers, the replenished numbers are actually uh, enough for some Russian officers and for some Russian commanders to try and uh, attempt uh, to slow down Ukrainian advance. Uh, Let me uh, ask
0: you, uh, I want to get to uh, Russian bloggers and we've got a couple of minutes left, but I have to ask you this question um, that uh, the United States has said we back Ukraine uh, and we're not trying to pressure uh, Ukraine into accepting a negotiated settlement. But at the same time, news stories broke over the weekend that the administration is uh, telling uh, the Ukrainians to be at least open to the negotiation. And for some, this is uh, a validation of Putin's strategy: right, make it miserable, drag it out. Eventually, people's support will dry up, uh, and and you can um, negotiate on 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 your terms. Um, is does this, in your mind, sort of signal any weakening of support from for for Ukraine?
1: No, it's not likely to weaken um, and uh, obviously we're heading into the midterm election, um, but it is unlikely for the support to weaken since uh, both political parties support uh, Ukrainians uh, fight for its independence. Uh, what has to happen probably in the, in the coming months is um, a reassessment and reevaluation where each side stands. Um, but it is too early, I think, to talk about any, um, any significant pressure on Ukraine to come to the negotiating tables, essentially, as Ukraine is now pressing Russians in Kherson and has Crimea in its sights. Um, Let
0: me uh, bring you to one last question, which is uh, Russian bloggers. It's astonishing uh, how tough they are on their uh, government. uh, And indeed, uh, you know, either pressuring uh, Putin to do more, uh, you know, be more violent, be more brutal, or actually be very specific and relatively thoughtful about the kind of capabilities the guys on the front lines need. What are some of the Russian bloggers saying about what uh, the frontline troops should be getting uh, from uh, from Moscow?
1: Well, some of them are actually sounding off on the UAV capabilities. They're now saying that uh, landsets and similar loitering drones should be integrated into the battalion and, uh, and company structures. Uh, they're uh, basically asking for more loitering munitions at all structures um, of the Russian military. They wanna integrate greater number of Orlan 30, longer ranged ISR drones that can range up to 300 kilometers that can look for Ukrainian artillery. Uh, they're talking about other capabilities, but mostly uh, they are now trying to indicate that Landsets and Kubler drones uh, need to be uh, very closely and very tightly integrated into the Russian military structure to enable defenses against uh, some of the Ukraine's more, uh, more capable systems.
0: Sam, thanks very much. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, really appreciate it uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fago. And before we hear from our next guest, I want to uh, make a correction on yesterday's uh, business roundtable program. I said that Sweden had bought four Blackhawks. Uh, that was wrong. Sweden uh, bought 15 uh, Blackhawk uh, helicopters. And I apologize for having made that uh, mistake. Uh, I was going off of memory, and there were four in Linköping many years ago when I was there. And for some reason or other, that's the number that popped in my head. I apologize for having made the mistake, Uh, and if we uh, make other mistakes, do let us know. We will correct them immediately. Joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back to the program.
2: Always a pleasure, Vago.
0: Uh, indeed. It wouldn't be Monday if you weren't on the show. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, a whole series of thoughtful notes uh, over the course of the week, as as always. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your, um, you know, you've been looking at inflation and how it's impacting uh, defense contractors. You do that roughly on a weekly basis. Uh, what is the latest that you've uh, learned?
2: Well, there was an Aviation Week uh, Aerospace and Defense Programs Conference that I attended. I actually spoke at it, but it was you know the the issues of inflation uh talent recruitment retention you know there were some interesting insights from the from the conference there was there was actually a fairly senior executive from one of the major defense contractors who basically said look we are not seeing <clears throat> cpi like inflation we you know which is like the 8% plus gains we are seeing inflation pressures around 4% um <clears throat> we still are seeing You know, in a normal year, we might see wage pressure kind of, you know, annual increases in the 3% range. You could double that um, as a pressure. And, you know, that, frankly, for for his company and assume other companies, you know, this is going to have a tail to it. That the inflation you're seeing this year, while it may not have been reflected in, in operating profit margins, and I'll get to that in a second, um, it is something that's going to linger into 2023 and 2024, particularly as as you know contracts that had been negotiated with subcontractors and suppliers <clears throat> roll off, and they're renegotiated to reflect the higher uh, materials and labor costs that have been evidenced through through the economy. What was interesting to me was that. <clears throat> you know, there was also a lot of discussion about digital transformation going on at defense contractors. And, you know, this is true in the aerospace sector, you know, some of some of the companies that have sponsored your show have talked about this a lot. Uh, Textron comes to mind, for example. Um, And I find, you know, that's kind of an interesting thread to pull here is there are ways for companies to offset some of these, these um, pressures. And it had been alluded to in some of the conference calls uh, <clears throat> that just finished up with earnings season, where managements talked vaguely about productivity gains. But when you get into this whole notion of, um, you know, more modern factories, uh, digital threads, digital design, there should be cost savings in terms of first, you know, the, the amount of waste. Uh, that may go on in in building a prototype or even even in manufacturing kit. There will potentially be savings longer term from depreciation and amortization if this if this all proves to be less capital intensive. <clears throat> that you can use, um, you know, as someone said, the parts basically become the tools. And so I just think this was interesting. And you know, I did what I do after every earnings season, and that is I rack and stack the operating profit margin, some of the other data that's reported by the defense segments of probably 30 to 40 different contractors. And, you know, what you see is, you know, operating margins were fairly steady. (laughs) They were down, you know, minimally, really, uh, for most contractors, uh, but I think that's kind of with margin of error. The only exception, of course, was the whopping um, charge that Boeing took on its its uh, defense space and security business. And I, I just think Boeing is an absolute outlier in this whole question about how contractors are dealing with costs. And there are probably some other reasons for that. But, um, but generally, you know, the sector seems to be coping well with inflationary pressures. And I think what this also should do... It may be help inform some of the debate that's going on around uh, the Department of Defense's budget and inflationary pressures. They exist, um, but you know what I see absolutely absent from some of the stuff that's coming out, particularly some of the think tank community. There's no discussion about, hey, where could DoD make some offsetting cost savings um, to reduce these these pressures and make sure that spending is is aligned with priorities and things that are actually adding value and maybe some of these internal investments that are taking place in in companies also should be should be um, reflected in the way the DoD conducts its business. Right. So it's just an interesting thread I wanted to pull on on, on this Monday morning.
0: Um, it, it, it it's, a, it's a great thread. And as you said, right, I mean, if we were clearer about priorities, we would make better investment decisions. But alas, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, you mentioned uh, Boeing, uh, Byron, and it has been a tough ride, even though Ted Colbert's trying to get his arms around a whole series of challenges uh, that uh, the unit has with MQ25, with T7, uh, both being delayed, and then also uh, seeing, you know, the KC. 46 is a gift that keeps on giving on a, on a daily basis, unfortunately for the company still. Uh, walk us through Boeing's commercial posture because Dave Calhoun, uh, the chief executive told, uh, uh, the company's investor day in Seattle, uh, last week, uh, that, uh, no new commercial aircraft would be delivered, uh, would b- development of a new commercial aircraft, a single aisle airplane wouldn't start until, uh, the mid 2030s. Uh, that means that something doesn't get introduced until what about 2040 or later in the decade. Uh, and, um, You know, we discussed on uh, the weekend show with Ron, Richard, and Sash the implications of not developing a new airplane on the company's engineering based, business based market share. Uh, it reinforces Richard's perspective uh, that the reason is willful damaging the company to make it MA fodder. There are some who disagree with that, and the company rejects that speculation. Uh, sure. And the, the explanation Calhoun gave is hey, you know, there may be new engine technologies, and so let's not move too hastily, even though the sense for synthetic aviation fu- fu- fuels is that they would just go into existing airplanes, right? Talk to us about. His commercial aviation posture, and what it, what are the implications for the defense sector?
2: Well, Vogel, you know, I'm not a commercial aerospace analyst. Um, I really focus on defense, and so what was interesting for me is what Calhoun's posture suggests for Boeing's defense business. And you know, historically, Boeing has benefited from having that mixed portfolio. You know, the, the work it did on the B two bomber. Um, It was a subcontractor to Northrop Grumman absolutely helped them with the triple seven program. And um, some of the work, you know, that uh, led to their T seven wing, when on the, you know, the air force trainer program, you know, some of the manufacturing uh, setup technologies, the digital design, digital thread that I just mentioned, you know, that came from the commercial world and really benefited their defense business. So they, they've, they've managed to, you know, kind of pull from both sides. And I just wonder, you know, if you think about Boeing uh, defense space and security over the next decade, if they're not gonna be really pulling from commercial airplane, how does that affect their competitiveness? You know, does it make them even more aggressive on things like the NGAD program? Um, you know, what are they going to do for derivatives of things like T7? Um, You know, to me, the F-18 and the F-15, as much as uh, those are still capable airplanes, they look like they're kind of at the end of their lines. Um, And without a design team in the the commercial business, you know, can they really sustain that through their defense programs? And uh, I just wonder if that's something that um, you know, I, I don't know how you reconstitute uh, an airplane design team from scratch, you know, if and when you eventually need to, to pull that trigger. And, and if it's not going to come from the defense business, it, it really kind of raises some core questions about what business is Boeing in. Um, and then I suppose the other question is, OK, if you if Boeing put out this $10 billion a year, in free cash flow target as kind of a normalized run rate for the company does that also suggest that they're just not going to be aggressive on whatever new programs do come up for bid um you know to avoid the, this kind of train wreck of uh, persistent um write offs that we saw culminate in this latest one in in the in their September quarter so it's it's not for me it's not a good message for the overall health of the U S aerospace industry. Um, you know, I think it's good to have a vibrant commercial airplane company. Um, and you know, we have allies who will, who will maybe provide that backstop, but, um, I think there are defense ramifications that need to be thought through for this.
0: Look, I think anybody looking at this, uh, who is, um, you know, a, a patriotic American who wants to deliver capability, uh, wants to see, uh, Boeing on a firm uh, footing not just for the economic health of the nation, but uh, as well uh, to deliver the kind of military capabilities because once upon a time the company's engineering power uh, wasn't it Byron at one point listed as one of the five technical discrim- you know five strategic discriminators for the United States, right? One was yeah. nuclear weapon, uh, the submarine space, uh, and you know Boeing's engineering prowess, uh, yeah. right so,
2: well, yes, I mean, you know, if you look at Boeing's role, you know, as I said, I just think having a healthy commercial aerospace business, not not just one that's kind of producing mature designs. I mean, that's kind of where McDonnell Douglas ended up. And, you know, when it came time to pull the trigger, they didn't pull the trigger, um, you know, and, and I think that frankly was a company that was a, <laughs> a, a, a roadkill on the uh, long road of trying to build shareholder value.
0: Uh, art, artfully put uh and uh you know in, in terms of uh, the b2 technology right um, i think it was the wing spars uh, and boeing pioneered uh technology that was used in the wingspars of the b2 and then the company asked hey you know can can we use this technology and the us air Force said sure and so that led right to the one-piece thermoplastic tail uh, on the triple seven and and other components that the company was able to make uh, on the commercial side memory. that then
2: you have a better memory than I do on that Vago, but yes, that's exactly what I was referring to. Uh,
0: it, 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 and I remember this in the deep reaches uh, of, of of my mind. So if I've erred, uh, I will uh, make uh, a uh, correction on that. Um, Byron, give us—you know—the election. The biggest thing going on tomorrow is the election, so that's going to dominate uh, headlines and coverage. Uh, but well, you know, what have you got on the docket uh, in terms of the week ahead, aside from the election, that people should be paying attention to?
2: There are a number of calls being held by think tanks, both in uh, the United States and in London, on the ramifications of the midterm elections. There really isn't a whole lot else going on. Um, There's an event that um, is actually going on right now that people could probably listen to that ISS is holding on France and Germany's response to Russia's war in Ukraine. since it's a fairly quiet week uh from from that standpoint i would highlight uh a report that royal united services institute uh released i guess it was actually late last night that they released it but it's on their website today on kind of russia's uh, air performance in the war in ukraine and it's really a fascinating read um th- these guys are continuing to produce just really eye-opening research on how the war has been fought, what the ramifications are, and you know, to your conversation you had with Sam, um, uh, Ukraine is going to need a lot more here uh, to make it through what I think is going to be a very tough winter.
0: Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure uh, to have you on the program. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Vago.